Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to episode 185 of the MyFit Podcast. This week, I am thrilled to chat with award-winning science writer, David Robson. David is currently based in the UK. He graduated from Cambridge University and has appeared in several notable publications, including Guardian, The Atlantic, Men's Health, and Washington Post. Most of you have heard of the placebo effect and how sugar pills can accelerate healing. But did you know that people who believe stress is beneficial become measurably more creative when placed under strain? Or associating aging with wisdom can add seven plus years to your life? Such is the power of the expectation effect. What we think will happen changes what does happen. I recently read David's amazing book called The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World, and I can't get enough of it. I'm probably going to read it a second time. For those of you that have been followers of the show or you know me personally, you know I'm very gravitated towards anything and all things to do with mindset. To me, the power of the mind, mind over muscle, mind over body is so fascinating to me and is a topic that personally, I don't think it's talked about enough. And once you can learn some of these things and apply them to your life, I think it's an absolute game changer. So I'm really excited to continue to bring on authors, scientists, and people in this space. Some of the topics we got into today were surrounding the book. And first, I wanted to get into what was the personal story of the expectation effect that showed up in David's life? He talks about it in the book, and I think it was a great place for the listeners to kind of set the table for the rest of the conversation. After that, we talked about how your beliefs and your words shape your reality. We talk about expectations. A lot of those are also the stories in your head and the words that you say out loud. And a lot of those are really dug really deep into your system, whether you were told from your parents, friends, or just kind of something that you told yourself, a narrative that you told yourself uh, growing up and has stuck with you for several years. After that, we talked about how we can rethink pain and discomfort in a better way. Then we talked about how thinking of everyday activities rather than work gives us a healthier life. Then we talked about your expectations are greater than your genes. One of my favorite parts about the expectation effect book is that David talks a lot about these theories, but backs them up with tons of science and studies. And probably my favorite study was talking about how our expectations are greater than our genes. Very cool. Very interesting part. After that, we talked about how to turn negative feelings into your advantage. We talked about why you are really as young or old as you feel. This was David's, David's favorite part of the book and one of my favorites as well about aging and how we view aging and how sometimes we can 
push ourselves into an early death just based off of our mindset because we're feeling like we're getting old and we're kind of giving up early. Super fascinating stuff there. And then at the end, we close down with three ways to implement the expectation effect into your own life. This book, 200 some pages is jammed packed with a ton of takeaways, uh, lots of studies and great life lessons for you guys. I highly encourage you to check it out. We just scratched the surface in this conversation. So if you're wanting to learn more about the expectation effect and how you can use it to your advantage in your life, I highly recommend going and purchasing his book. If you enjoy this conversation, please be sure to leave a rating review and share it on your social medias. Your five-star feedback helps the show grow tremendously and helps to bring on more amazing guests like David. Without further ado, let's get to this insightful conversation with David Robson. Let's go. MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again, that's www.drinkelement.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. David Robson, welcome to the MyFit podcast. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get into this stuff today. I was saying off air that this is probably my favorite topic. I love talking about all things mindset and the power of expectation is right in that realm of how to sharpen your mindset. Your book is incredible. It's called The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Change Your World. And on page one, you open the book with the quote, the mind is its own place and in itself can make heaven of hell a hell of heaven. Talk to me about that quote. Yeah, so I mean, that comes from uh, Milton, I believe. And yeah, you know, that just really struck me as I was like writing this book that actually, you know, I was writing it in the middle of the pandemic, actually. So, you know, um, there's all this scientific research showing the power of mindset, but it really hit it home to me, actually, that like so many of our circumstances are beyond our control. And, you know, we couldn't just like magic away the pandemic with positive thinking but we could change um, how we interpreted that situation and that that could actually be really powerful in shaping our responses to it, you know, whether it, it kind of um, uh, harmed our mental health, but also things like physical fitness, you know, our creativity, productivity at work, all of these things. Actually, the research showed really clearly that, you know, mindset can't perform miracles, but it really can kind of make a big difference to you still. Um, so, yeah, that quote just really spoke to me. And the expectation effect during the pandemic, I'm sure, was an interesting uh, time to write the book. I know at the time, there's a lot of people saying, you know, the mask's got to be done at this point, or we'll be through this in a year. There's a lot of different expectations floating around, depending on, obviously, where you lived. Where did you see the expectation effect 
kind of play out during the pandemic for better or for worse? Mm, yeah, I mean, definitely like um, managing our own expectations, I think was super useful. And, you know, I remember in the first lockdowns, just kind of trying to take each week as it came, like without thinking too far into the future. But um, I also, you know, like I think it was stuff like trying to work out like with my own fitness, like what can I do now? I can't go to the gym. And like it could have been really easy for me to kind of just fall into this kind of rut you know where I just kind of gave up completely and thought well like I you know felt completely helpless so I just wasn't going to make an effort but actually you know at that time I really got into um kind of high intensity fitness kind of just doing kind of home workouts you know in my living room um and building that into my routine um and so and you know like again I was trying to kind of with my mindset there I was trying not to make a negative comparison with what I had been doing previously but just appreciating what I was doing and actually you know in the end I think I, I kind of got hooked on those workouts so much I was probably doing more exercise than I had before the pandemic and so yeah I think like that was a lesson to me as well it was just you know um, it's so easy to descend into helplessness but actually you know, we can just um, try to think, well, yeah, what can we control and what can we do that's um, productive and positive, even if it's not ideal. Mm. You tell a story in a book about how the expectation effects showed up in your life and kind of catapulted you to write this book. Would you mind telling that story about how it played a huge role in your own life? Yeah, I mean, so that was years ago. Um, and, you know, I've been a science journalist for, you know, about eight or so years at the time. Um, not always coming. I'd always known about the placebo effect and its power, but um, actually, you know, with this event in my life, I also learned about the nocebo effect, and that is the opposite of the placebo effect. It's where your negative expectations create negative outcomes. Um, so, you know, I happened to be uh, writing this article on the nocebo effect, and, you know, it's, um, I found out that a lot of drug side effects actually come from this. They're kind of, their origin is primarily psychological and that can then change your physiology. So if you're told you're going to get headaches, actually that can change the uh, vasculature of your brain. So you do have like headaches that are completely indistinguishable from the normal headaches you would have, you know. Um, so yeah, that was, it was just a weird coincidence. So I was researching this piece, fascinated by it. Uh, but at the same time, I was also kind of going through a period of depression and I've been prescribed these antidepressant pills, which, you know, just very standard pills. Uh, but my doctor did tell me, you know, as they're kind of obliged to do, that you might be experiencing, uh, you might experience some of these side effects, which included really bad headaches. And so, you know, it just happened actually that I did then start to experience these headaches. But it was just, it was lucky that at the same time, I kind of knew, well, maybe this might be an expectation effect, the nocebo effect. So after a few days, like I really did try to just open my mind to that possibility and to just ask myself, like, you know, am I kind of creating this myself? And that actually just provided a lot of pain relief I needed. So, you know, I kind of read the data on the drug itself that I was taking, you know, found that actually most people who have that side effect, you know, it probably is caused by expectation. Um, so I looked at the data and, and kind of that reassured me. And then by the end of the day, you know, the pain had vanished and didn't come back. So that to me was just a really powerful demonstration um, in my own life of how, you know, these expectation effects are totally real. Like that pain wasn't like imagined. It's not like I was just malingering, you know, it was having a real effect on my well-being. And, and that really just triggered me to then, you know, think, well, what else is it doing in our lives? That how, how powerful can it be? So 
I started collecting studies. I made a really long kind of word document, and, and eventually, a few years later, I just realised actually um, it really needed to be a bigger story that I could tell for a book. You know, looking at all different areas of our life. You know, in hospital, like in you know medical settings, but also in fitness, diet, sleep, aging. You know, it really could affect almost every single area of our lives. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the power of our expectations, I think about what's going on between the ears, David, but I also think about the words that we say. I think the words and it combined with our beliefs is what shape our reality. What have you kind of heard or researched on not only the thoughts, because I'm sure we'll get into that, but also just as a side note, what about some of the words that we're saying out loud or to the people next to us? What kind of role do they have in our expectations? Yeah, I mean, they matter hugely. So there is this kind of well-known effect, actually, that once you say something, <laughs> you kind of uh, internalize that it's called the I don't know like um, say it and believe it effect because you um, you know once you've shared this information to someone else it's like tricking your mind into thinking well it just must be true um, now I think you know that can be that can have a negative effect in our lives if you know we have a tendency to always uh, kind of moan or to look you know to look on the dark uh, dark side of stuff and maybe we're trying to be a bit modest so we're always kind of downplaying things and but actually what you're doing is then kind of wiring that into your thinking more permanently um, but actually with expectation effects it's a really valuable tool because essentially you know if you share the power of expectation if you tell your you know your friends and your family like how you could reframe your thinking about a stressful situation to make it Kind of more pleasant for you and actually to kind of boost your performance like once you share your knowledge of that effect you're also helping yourself as well so you're helping everyone essentially um so yeah that's where i see it really that actually we, we have to be really careful with our communication uh both with the effects we're having on other people and ourselves mm -hmm. and what, what what might seem like something not very harmful actually it, it can be right over time if you keep repeating the story um you know over time, we start to believe the words that we're saying. So, and what I'm trying to say is right away, it might not seem like a big deal, David, but I'm sure over time you keep repeating that story soon enough, you're going to start living that reality. Yeah, that's totally it because we kind of create this narrative and, you know, I think often for, it can be like a fairly small trigger, like, you know, say you've been fine giving like, uh, you know, public speeches um, and then you have one bad experience. And, you know, there are two ways of looking at that. You can just think it's like a kind of one-off, you know, maybe you weren't prepared or you were feeling under the weather or, you know, you were distracted. But um, but I think a lot of people, and myself included, would start to think, well, like, maybe this is just like, says something deeper about my ability. Like, maybe I was just lucky in all those other cases and this is really reflecting something deep about me. Mm -hmm. So you go to the next kind of event with the same mindset and, you know, then you perform worse and that really reinforces what you believed and soon you're going on this kind of downward trajectory. Um, so that's what a lot of the expectation effect is about really, is actually just preventing that kind of catastrophizing way of viewing the world. So I'm not asking people to kind of be Pollyanna and just tell yourself that, you know, everything's great and, you know, um, you're amazing, you know, like you don't have to actually like beef yourself up that much. I think it's just enough to actually break the negative cycles of thinking to take you to that kind of sweet point in the middle. And, and with that open mind, you can then, um, you know, start to kind of build on your small successes.
Mm -hmm. I love that clarification too, David, because you could easily read the book and say, and you know, or read the title and think it's just a, a one size fits all, just be happier, right? Just change your attitude. And it's not that you have very specific examples of, you know, diet or aging or whatever it may be. And really attacking scenario by scenario. It's not just flip the switch and I'm a happy person now where I, I have better expectations now. Would, would you agree? Yeah, totally. I mean, one of my favorite reviews said that um, this is a woo-woo positivity form. Um, like I was so pleased that that reviewer, you know, that she really got what I was trying to say here, which is that, yeah, like we have to be, I'm talking about really specific situations and I'm talking about re reframing or reappraising these situations in a way that's totally honest and objective, you know. Um, Often, I think, actually, when we're being overly negative, we're, we have a tendency, I think, to be irrational when we're overly negative. We're kind of scared of being overly positive. But we have this kind of idea that to be pessimistic somehow makes you kind of wiser. But that's not the case at all. You know, it's, this really is just kind of questioning about questioning your assumptions. And often your assumptions are worse than the actual reality. Well, my, one of my favorite parts about the book, David, is the the idea that you give the explanations, but then you also back it up with a lot of science. I think that's really fun for listeners to get into. And there's so many studies in the book. I want to go through a couple of them just so people can understand how valuable the expectation effect really is. I want to start with the first one, which is, I think, one of the first ones in the book of the hotel cleaners. For those of you that haven't read the book, first of all, go get this book. Second, can you walk through what is the uh, uh, expectation effect with the hotel cleaners? Yeah, I mean, I think this is the perfect example because I think it really, you know, underlines what we're saying that it's, you know, it's actually just looking at the facts objectively can actually be super powerful. Um, so essentially, these were researchers from Harvard and they um, looked at a bunch of universities. So visited a bunch, uh, sorry, they visited a bunch of hotels and spoke to the cleaners in each hotel. Um, now, for some, you know, they kind of just measured their kind of... Uh, uh, kind of health statistics, you know, their BMI, their blood pressure, without really giving them any education. But the others, they kind of just um, asked the cleaners to look at their kind of daily work in a slightly different kind of way. So they, you know, just pointed out that even though, you know, um, lifting the furniture or, you know, uh, vacuuming the floor doesn't seem to be exercise, actually you're burning as many calories as you would if you were going to the gym and that over the course of the week you're meeting the kind of recommendations for the amount of physical activity you should be getting. Um, they also left some kind of leaflets around and posters just to help remind these cleaners, you know, as they were going about their, their work. Um, then they visited them a month later and they found that the, the cleaners who had received this education about the benefits of their work had just been asked to kind of reframe it and view it kind of more positively and more usefully as, as a form of exercise. That they actually, you know, showed health benefits as if they had been doing more exercise. Um, you know, they, their blood pressure fell, they had lost a bit of weight. Um, you know, they, it really seemed like they were physically fitter. Um, and that didn't happen in those other kind of control group of hotels where the cleaners were, um, you know, just had their kind of uh, health measured but hadn't been given this education. And, you know, what I like to emphasize there is the fact that all of the information they gave the cleaners was completely 100% true. They weren't, you know, it wasn't about deceiving them. They were just telling them, look, here's something that you didn't think of as being very positive, and we're telling you why it might actually be more positive than you think. And that in itself then changed the health. So just being aware and kind of changing the mindset of, hey, I'm not going to work 
Rather, I am becoming healthier. Just that change in mindset you're saying, David, was the change in some of their uh, health scores. Yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, they kind of gave them, um, you know, like questionnaires to check that they hadn't been, you know, hitting the gym because they suddenly felt better, but they, you know, they hadn't really changed their lifestyle. They hadn't been eating differently. It purely seemed as if it was uh, because they'd been told to reinterpret their work in that way. And then there's other research that backs this up too. So there was a longitudinal study that um, kind of gave people accelerometers, but also, um, you know, to wear on their you know, risk, you know, like basically like a smartwatch today, um, uh, but also ask them to kind of appraise their fitness. Like, did they think that they were fitter than the average person or less fit than the average person? And what they found was that independent of the actual physical activity recorded by those accelerometers, um, the beliefs themselves could predict their risk of cardiovascular disease over a number of years. So it seemed that how yeah, exactly like how they perceived themselves to be was as important as their actual physical fitness, which, you know, supports this idea that it's not just what we do, but it's what we think that we're doing that is important. So true. There's a phrase I like to say a lot of people that are listening have probably heard me say this a dozen times, but I, I like reframing with my clients and people around myself, Dave, is the idea of you don't have to do things you get to do things. We hear a lot of people complain about, I have to pick up my kids. I have to go to work. I have to make dinner. And just the simple switch of that one word from I have to versus I get to, I kind of see some parallels in the same thing with the people working at the hotel. It's not, you have to go to work. It's you get to go to work. And in another step, you get to exercise at work. It's just a total uh, you know, flip in, in words. And really it's just one word that changes the whole thing. Yeah, no, it is. And, you know, because um, that makes me think of like Billie Jean King, who famously said that pressure is privilege. And so she saw, you know, all of the kind of high profile matches, but also with her public speaking, that was like that, you know, she was getting all of these opportunities, you know, as an, you know, like because she was achieving her goals and ambitions and it was, she was it was allowing her to grow and just kind of changing that mindset helped her to cope with the pressure that she was under. And, you know, I see the same uh, myself, you know, when I do public speaking about my books, it's like, I think in the past, I kind of had this tendency to think like, uh, to feel like I'd almost been like forced into it. And then it's like, I actually just have to stop myself and, and remind myself that like, I'm doing this because I've done all this research and because I want to communicate it to as many people as possible. And this is completely my choice. Like I could say no, I could just refuse to do it, but like I have to own the fact that like I'm on the stage now because this is part of my kind of big plan for my life. How else does the expectation effect show up in the fitness space? I mean, I think, you know, along a similar kind of line, um, it's really the research has shown that it's really important um, to think about how we we frame the kind of sensations we get while we're working out. And, you know, I think that is important for kind of elite athletes, but I think also for people like me who had maybe, you know, been a bit more reluctant in the past, um, that like, it's easy to read like, well, a really natural reaction to exercise, you know, like your heart is gonna race um, because you need to get the oxygen pumping around your body. And, you know, you're gonna feel out of breath and, you know, it's easy to interpret those sensations as being like a sign of your lack of fitness. Like you, as soon as you stop feeling them, you stop feeling kind of shame almost that you're not as fit as you feel like you should be, that you're suffering more than you should be. But actually like just reframing the, those feelings and to be like, actually this was the very purpose of coming to the gym. It was to work your body 
to its limit so that it could become stronger over time. Um, and just like changing that mindset, you know, has been shown to be really powerful in improving people's performance and reducing their kind of perceived exertion. So actually, you know, once you start to see um, all of these kind of aches and pains as being positive, actually, that just makes you feel like you're working less hard than you really are. Um, and, you know, it has kind of downstream physiological benefits to kind of changing your perception of your own fitness in this way and trying to kind of celebrate what you're doing rather than kind of beating yourself up because you, you don't think you're doing it well enough. You tell the story of the study of the VO2 max and how people, uh, I don't want to give it away, but they were told they were going to be good at this because they have a specific gene. I think it's the, probably the most fantastic piece of this book. Can you tell that story? Mm, yeah. So this was research. This was mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This was um, research at Stanford and they, you know, took these people into the lab and gave them a genetic test for the CROB1 gene. So we know that, you know, there are two variants. Um, one is going to make you, a little bit kind of um, less good at endurance exercise than the other one. Um, but the effects aren't huge, actually. It's changing things just like your kind of body temperature, like whether it rises more or less quickly kind of as you um, start doing endurance exercise um, and things like gas exchange within the lungs. If you have the beneficial version of the gene, then, you know, the exchange is just a little bit more efficient. Um, but so the, the participants did this... Um, genetic test, but they received sham feedback. So some were told that they had the beneficial gene, others were told that, you know, maybe they weren't genetically cut out for doing endurance exercise. Then they kind of hit the treadmills again, um, and the researchers measured, you know, the effects of those expectations on their performance. Um, and what they found was that the expectations really did change, you know, their overall endurance, their perceived exertion, the gas exchange within their lungs. So, you know, the expectations were important. And actually, in some of these cases, so specifically for the gas exchange, um, how efficiently they were changing oxygen for carbon dioxide, the expectations mattered more than the genes than the gene itself. So, you know, I think that's so important for everyone, and especially you know if you have been a couch potato, and you're always telling yourself that you know maybe because of your family history that you just can't do exercise. Well, those expectations are going to make it a lot harder for you to then get fit and just kind of going to the gym or doing your workouts with a more open mind and just thinking that, you know, just questioning that narrative could be really powerful. Mm. So what I'm hearing you say is that in this specific scenario, the story in your head and the story you're being told is actually more important than your physiology. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, again, we're not saying that you can become like an Olympic athlete overnight because you're changing your perceptions. But I do think it's more important when you're looking at the kind of trajectory of performance. You know, if you have the negative expectations of what you can achieve, if you just assume you're not cut out for something, you, you might make some um, kind of improvements, but your trajectory is going to be a lot slower. And actually just changing your mindset will kind of take the brakes off of your performance. So, so you'll just achieve more, you know, more of what you want. You'll reach your goals more quickly. I know from experience, David, I've, I've uh, competed at CrossFit at a pretty high level for several years. And I know from experience being in the gym, I found myself before lifting saying, man, this is going to feel heavy. And what does it do? It feels freaking heavy or, Hey, this workout's going to be hard today. And what happens? It's a really hard workout. And sometimes I fall into that trap. I, I try to catch myself more now that I'm kind of aware of this stuff, but some of those words and expectations you throw out at yourself really have a direct correlate of what actually happens and what you feel. 
Yeah, exactly, because you can get caught in this kind of negative like, loop where, you know, you know, like you were saying, you, you kind of tell yourself this is going to feel heavy, then it does feel heavy, and then that kind of makes, kind of conditions you to find it heavier the next time. And so, yeah, that's how it is really kind of putting the brakes on your performance. And mm -hmm. there's been a lot of research on kind of placebo sports supplements, actually, that show how powerful those expectations can be. Um, so, you know, people were given um, kind of decaffeinated coffee, but they were told it was like really high caffeine content, which should help you to kind of lift heavier weights. And actually they did improve their performance considerably. Um, and actually the people who were given real coffee, like high, highly caffeinated coffee, but were told it was decaffeinated, like they performed a lot worse. So again, the expectations were having more of an effect than the actual chemical. Um, and they, the researchers found they could actually boost this effect even more through a process of conditioning. So they kind of got people to take the coffee and then they, uh, you know, surreptitiously like reduced the weight that the people were um, lifting on a couple of their trials. So they were having this coffee and then they were lifting what they thought were really heavy weights, but found that they were really light, um, reinforcing this idea that this caffeine was like really boosting their strength. And then finally, when they were put on the right weight, um, you know, they showed a lot more strength again. So, you know, they were kind of building, the researchers essentially were helping them to build that positive narrative. The mind is so powerful. It blows my mind. Uh, you talked all about uh, also about the expectations, how they can hurt as well as heal. And you talked about pain specifically. So how can we think about pain and discomfort and discomfort in a better way? Mm, yeah. I mean, I think with pain, like um, there's so much research showing that um, firstly, that there's a strong nocebo response for pain. So if you tell someone something's going to hurt, it's going to hurt a lot more than it would have done if you kind of calmed them down beforehand and just kind of told them, you know, not to worry, it would be over quickly. Um, but then also, like, um, there's research showing that those catastrophizing thoughts that we might have about an injury, um, you know, like, so you, when you're feeling the pain, you might start to kind of think, well, like, I'm... I'm never going to feel better again. This is never going to heal. This is unbearable. I can't cope. I can't function. You know, all like, they seem quite reasonable thoughts. But what happens is that that actually um, exacerbates the pain you're feeling. Physiologically, it makes it a lot worse. So it triggers the release of this chemical called CCK, which amplifies the pain signals. So your brain is actually, you know, receiving a stronger signal um, telling it, you know, the body's in danger. Um, so, you know, to, to kind of avoid that, you really want to break the, the kind of spiral of rumination there. So just kind of question yourself and be like, you know, have I experienced similar pain in the past? And did that actually, you know, vanish after a certain point? Um, is it true that I, I can't cope or are there ways of maybe distracting myself from this? You know, positive coping, essentially, like just looking, not imagining that the pain just isn't there, but essentially just trying to prevent yourself from, uh, from exaggerating how serious it is in your mind. Because I think what's important as well is that when the body's feeling pain, the intensity of the pain isn't necessarily um, a signal of uh, a fair representation of how serious the injury is. So you can feel a lot of pain even when your body's actually not being damaged that badly. You know, when you have a bad headache, it feels like, it does feel like a bomb's going off in your brain, but actually there's no brain damage there. It's you know, it is, it is going to get better. So it's just kind of reminding yourself of those facts and reminding yourself of the, the body's ability to, you know, 
heal after lots of these injuries, especially if you're getting good medical treatment. You know, that in itself can be really positive and really powerful for um, helping you to cope and to reduce the actual physical suffering. How about the expectation, David, of coming off of a surgery and, you know, a doctor gives you, hey, it's going to be six weeks before you can do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, they're already putting the expectation on you. So it's whether you want to believe that or not. But what are research or what ideas do you have around people? Maybe their, um, their expectation is that instead of six weeks, it's going to be four weeks and they actually come to fruition in four weeks, or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe like, oh, this is going to take four months because of that things kind of lag. Tell me a little bit about what doctors prescribe some of those things, how you can overcome them and maybe even get healthier sooner. Do you have any research on that? Mm, yeah, I mean, that's a great study from Marburg in Germany. Um, they looked at um, people who'd undergone, you know, heart surgery. So, you know, um, not the kind of thing you're just going to get over in a day. Yeah. Um, but um, beforehand, um, they've given some of these uh, uh, patients kind of psychological therapy, like four sessions, um, talking with a psychologist about, like, you know, kind of fears of the surgery. So the, the psychologist just helped to kind of, um, uh, you know, to, to prevent them from catastrophizing what was about to happen, to kind of just explain objectively, like, this is what you should expect. Um, and this is why the surgery is beneficial to you. You know, this is why it's going to help you to heal in the long term. Um, and then they also help them to kind of visualize their recovery and to set out this kind of optimistic but realistic plan for their recovery. So, you know, they weren't kind of asking these people to push themselves up too hard or to expect to recover, you know, in an unrealistic amount of time. But they were just telling them, you know, like, we think that at this point you might be able to go on a holiday, at this point you might be able to begin training again, you know, just helping the patient to see what their trajectory was going to be. So they didn't get stuck in that negative way of thinking where they might just imagine they'll never be the same again and that they can never return to normal life. Um, and the, the effects were really striking. So compared to people who just had a normal, you know, hospital treatment, but without the psychological therapy, um, these patients left the hospital like days earlier. Um, and actually the cost of the hospital bed alone kind of justified having the psychological treatment. You know, it was a difference of, you know, a, a few, maybe five or six days. So, you know, that's a big cost, um, and, um, you know, and also like hugely important for the patient's comfort to be able to get back home and to kind of start, you know, um, kind of recovering by themselves. Um, but then, you know, six months later, these patients were also um, uh, better able to return to work, reported less disability, and you could see physiological markers of their quicker recovery too. So with some of the inflammatory molecules that you can get after an operation, they, the levels of those tended to be much lower. And that seems to be psychologically mediated because we know that um, our expectations, you know, can really profoundly influence um, levels of inflammation in the body through the stress response. Um, so, you know, the, the mechanisms are there. We, it's not kind of, we're not saying this is some kind of magical kind of cure, but, um, but just that actually through the, the effects of the brain and our, our expectations on the stress response, this was them lowering inflammation and that in turn allowed the heart to recover more quickly so that these people could, you know, return to their normal life at an earlier date. So our expectations can affect the inflammation in our body. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and actually we see that with a lot of research on stress as well. That, um, you know, 
everyone goes through like events that are kind of not pleasant, but, you know, changing your mindset about those events and how you appraise those events can influence, you know, all kinds of things like the hormonal balance while you're experiencing the event and then how your body recovers afterwards. And essentially here, the really important thing is to focus on, um, is to realize that we have this stress response for like an adaptive reason, like it evolved to actually help us to cope with challenges. So much like we were saying with the exercise, you know, you if you're kind of standing on the stage or in front of your colleagues and you, you've got this important presentation and you're feeling, uh, you know, your heart's racing, you know, you can see that as a kind of sign that you're about to fail. You can see that you're, you can tell yourself that if you're anxious, you know, there must be something wrong and like um, you're not going to perform at your best. But actually, you know, that the uh, heart is pumping oxygenated blood to your brain that helps you to think more kind of quickly and that, you know, no one giving a talk wants to kind of be kind of dozy or sleepy, like you need to be on the ball. And the same with the hormones that we associate with stress and that we think of as being purely negative. Well, something like cortisol is actually, you know, moderate levels of that is helping to prime your brain to kind of to think more quickly, to focus better. And just telling people about those benefits of stress, just educating them and letting them know that actually it's not a sign you're going to fail. It could actually be a sign that you're going to perform, you know, to your max. Um, that in turn then boosts their performance. But like I said, it also then changes things like the, the balance of hormones within the body. So they might see that um, peak in cortisol, which as I've said, isn't a bad thing, but they'll also see um, a kind of a, a kind of release of um, anabolic hormones like DHEAS, um, which is like a, I think a precursor for testosterone that actually helps you to kind of the body to build tissue and to repair tissue, which would be really important, especially for physical challenges, but also helps to reduce some of the potential negative effects of the cortisol. So it's really the balance that matters. And if you see stress as being potentially beneficial and energizing, you have a healthier balance. And then later on, you know, your heart recovers more quickly. It doesn't, um, you don't have that kind of prolonged uh, kind of a high blood pressure that you would have if you viewed the stress as being purely negative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's really beneficial in the moment, in the, you know, day of the event, but actually over time, like if you're facing a lot of stress, but you're always viewing it with this positive mindset, it's actually protecting you from some of the negative effects of the of having chronic stress and um, you know longitudinal studies have shown that actually if you it's not this stress amount of stress that you're experiencing but it's your stress mindset that can predict uh, your risk of cardiovascular disease so if you have a lot of stress but you have a positive stress mindset you're not really at any elevated risk of cardiovascular disease so our mind can almost, <laughs> our mind can make the stress worse. It could be something that's not very stressful. We, you talked about in your book, you over catastrophize it and make it bigger than what it is. And then boom, here's anxiety. And now we're on level 10 on something that probably should be a level two or three. Yeah, that's it. So I'm not talking about those events like, um, you know, bereavement or, you know, a diagnosis of a terminal illness. Um, but for, you know, lots of the stresses that we face, like they're not kind of, each one of them is not this kind of impending disaster, which we can see it as being. And then when we feel anxious and we think that the anxiety is going to bring about the disaster, it's adding like a whole level of stress that's totally unnecessary. So that's what this is all about. It's just 
removing that um, unnecessary level of stress and helping you see that actually that small amount of anxiety that you're you're experiencing that's actually beneficial to you. That's actually a tool that you should be making the most of rather than trying to fight it, rather than trying to get into this kind of Zen state of relaxation, which, you know, to be frank, is impossible if you're doing something that really matters to you. And, you know, the stakes are high. Mm -hmm. Another word flip here that I like to talk about is people, you know, they say I'm nervous and I like to flip that and say you're excited or in my case, I'm not nervous. I'm excited before a crosser competition, before giving a speech, before a big podcast. And you start to flip that narrative a little bit. And that, that just that simple flip of words, kind of like the have to versus get to really plays a difference in how you view and then also how you perform. It does. And, you know, they're really indistinguishable. Like scientists have tried to kind of measure the physiological markers of excitement or, you know, anxiety, and they're basically exactly the same thing. Um, So it very much is about how you interpret it. And I find this all the time. And and actually, you know, you just think like life would be so boring, actually, if we never faced any challenges that made us feel a little bit anxious. Like we need those kinds of highs and even some of those lows in our life to make it meaningful. Mm -hmm. You have a quote that says people who reported accepting their thoughts and feelings in contrast without characterizing them as good or sorry, as bad or inappropriate tend to have better physiological and psychological health. So when something, if I'm just kind of paraphrasing, when something comes in, maybe it's adversity, maybe it's not, it's a stress or whatever it may be, instead of saying, oh, this is a really good thing or, oh, this is really bad, but just staying more neutral, they actually had a little bit better of a, a better mindset. Is that kind of where you're going with that? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's just, you know, recognizing that the emotion you're feeling probably has a purpose. So, you know, the purpose of anxiety is to help us to deal with challenges. But say something like frustration or disappointment, you know, you haven't achieved what you wanted in an event or, you know, at your work. Um, you know, with our society that I think like, um, you know, we're kind of almost made to feel like we always have to be happy and that you know, sometimes these small sadnesses or stresses that we feel, things like frustration or disappointment, we almost feel like ashamed of them, like we we shouldn't be feeling that. But actually, you know, frustration and disappointment, they're both really important for motivating you for the future and for learning from your mistakes. Like you can only kind of achieve your goals if you go through those kind of negative and inverted commas emotions. And actually, you know, what these researchers are showing is that if you just recognize that fact, so you're not like, beating yourself up over feeling that frustration or disappointment, but you're actually almost like leaning into it and just, you know, thinking like, this is what I have to go through. If I'm going to actually, you know, live my life to the full, to the way I want to, that is actually just a necessary side effect of living life. That Actually, those people end up being much healthier physically and mentally. Yeah, there's a quote that I continue to bring up. I smile because I've been saying it so much on this podcast, but I just love it. Shakespeare said, there's nothing good nor bad. Only thinking makes it so. And how true is that when you talk about expectations, right? There's nothing good or bad that comes your way, but it's what your mind ends up telling you to make it go one way or the other. Yeah, totally. And I think that is especially true. You know, with so many of the things in our life that we you know, like we were saying, that we actually, we choose to kind of go through these events because they are important for our growth. Um, and then we forget that fact though, that actually, you know, these things are necessary for, for us to be living a meaningful life. And yeah, in those cases, certainly, like I don't think things are good or bad. It is just the way we interpret the event. Mm-hmm. There's a cool quote in the in kind of the chapter you're talking about now as a teacher, a professor, and they said, People think feeling anxiousness while taking a standardized test will make them do poorly on the test. However, 
recent research suggests that arousal doesn't hurt performance on these tests and can even help performance. People who feel anxiety during a test might actually do better. That means you shouldn't feel concerned if you feel anxious by doing today's test. If you find yourself feeling anxious, simply remind yourself that your arousal could be helping you do well. And I think if I remember reading this in the book is that the teacher gave this you know, statement to their students and they ended up scoring better because they just understood that before taking the test. What a cool way for teachers to kind of open their hour with is the statement of it's okay to feel anxiety before big tests, but actually how can we frame it to be a, a weapon, not a weakness? Yeah, exactly. So this was on like um, some really tough graduate exams. And, you know, the difference was especially noticeable in the maths part of those exams. So, you know, the part that most people are going to stress about. And then so the researchers kind of presented this kind of on a mock exam, like a fake exam beforehand. But then they saw that the effects actually kind of continued a few months later when they took the real test. There was still a noticeable benefit for these students. Um, yeah, you know, it's really powerful. And, you know, if you think about how cheap that kind of intervention is, it really isn't much to just kind of educate these students like before their exams about the benefits of anxiety, and then it's really helping them to achieve their own potential kind of later on. Mm -hmm. I think about stress too, David. I think about how some people view stress and how other people view stress. And I think about my life and I think about some of the moments that I was most stressed out. I think about I don't know whether it's before a big game or before a test or, you know, cramming to get an assignment in during college or, you know, any of those moments. But I also think about those moments as being some of the most enjoyable and achievable moments in my life. They're big moments and a lot of good things happen uh, after a stressful bout. And I, I don't know where I'm going with this other than the fact that I think people need to understand that without stress, I don't think there's a lot of joy. And without stress, there's certainly not a lot of fun. You'd be a lot really bored in life if there's no stretches that come your way. So trying to change that mindset of stress is actually a good thing. And you actually grow, you grow through stress. So you want, you earn, you want to yearn for that stress to have to come into your life. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I've mentioned a few of the benefits of stress when you have this positive mindset, but there are loads of others. Like it can, you know, if you view stress as being energizing and useful and important for growth, you know, it makes you more creative. It makes you more likely to look for the kind of proactive solutions to the problems you're facing rather than just trying to avoid them, um, which, you know, if you take that approach, you're actually then more likely to kind of overcome the kind of bigger issues at hand and to, you know, to maybe even benefit from this situation that seemed really difficult to cope with to start with. So yeah, I, you know, uh, like I applied this research to my own life all the time. And, you know, sometimes even, you know, with my writing and stuff and with books, you know, with like meeting my deadlines or even, you know, um, like when, to be honest, like when you're kind of putting together a proposal for a book and then it's submitted to like editors and you often have like lots of kind of, um, uh, high pressure phone calls, hoping that they'll kind of make this bid. And like, I remember the last time I went through that, just thinking that like, even if like I get no offers and the book can't go ahead, it's actually like, I'm really like privileged to have been through this process. And it's been like a bit like a roller coaster for me professionally. Like I wouldn't have changed it. I would, would not have decided not to do that, even though, yeah, like it was a lot of stress, but it was also like really exciting and like really fun. And yeah, I think that's what I've taken away from all of this research is that actually, yeah, like just, just like kind of recognizing how lucky you sometimes are to be able to kind of 
to put yourself to the test and to have that potential growth, like just recognizing that alone can be really powerful. Awesome. Another big part of the book was about diet. And I think one of the, the most mind blowing studies was the gluten intolerance study. So, so, so interesting to me. Can you talk about that one? Mm, yeah. So like, first of all, I'm not saying that some people aren't um, gluten intolerant. Um, you know, uh, some people do have celiac disease where they just cannot digest wheat. Um, you know, other people are just uh, don't have celiac disease, but they are intolerant to some of the uh, products around kind of that come with gluten normally, some of those carbohydrates that come with wheat. Um, but there's like a different group of people um, who are probably suffering from a nocebo effect. So because of a, an expectation that they'll react badly to wheat, um, they really do have the physical symptoms. So they're going to experience the bloating, you know, problems with digestion, you know, they can't be faked. Um, but actually, that is a, an expectation effect. And we know this because uh, scientists have given these people um, foodstuffs that didn't contain any wheat products, but they told them they did contain wheat products. And actually, they found that these people still showed the same kinds of responses that they would have had if they'd eaten something with gluten. Um, and, you know, I think especially there's been a lot of like media coverage for um, you know, gluten sensitivities, like, you know, and that has led, I think, in the UK, you know, the rates of it to kind of triple or even more, you know, I think at one point, 30% of people were avoiding wheat because they believed they had some kind of intolerance. Um, uh, the stats suggest that, you know, a large portion of those people maybe don't have a biological reason for avoiding wheat, and it might be their expectations that are then causing them to kind of develop that sensitivity. So how do you overcome that? What are your thoughts? Mm. People definitely can overcome these nocebo effects. Um, often educating people about the nocebo effect can be really powerful in itself. And actually, I mean, the best thing about knowing about the, the expectation effect is that it does kind of protect you a bit kind of in the future too. So it's almost like an immunization. Once you have the knowledge, you're less susceptible to these negative expectation effects. Um, I, I think with these people especially, it could be really helpful if, you know, their doctor or maybe just a friend or relative kind of does one of these tests with them and, you know, gives them this food that might or might not contain gluten and repeats it a few times. And then they look at the results and see if they actually, you know, experience the symptoms through expectation or whether it, it really did correlate with the actual gluten content. So just proving it to yourself. Um, obviously, that's only the kind of thing you could do if you're sure that you're kind of safe to do so. If it's not the kind of allergy that's actually going to put you in danger. Yeah. For me, that's like, that's like Chinese food, right? So like, I've always had this understanding that the MSG is going to make you feel not so good in the stomach, make you have diarrhea, whatever it's going to be. And because of that, that's what happens to me because I believe that I've been told that my whole life, but in reality, it's like, I wonder if I'm putting that on myself. Mm, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> totally possible. Um, you know, very much fits with the research, you know, I guess another way you could do it is kind of through um, kind of small kind of microdoses almost of like MSG or whatever, just to kind of build it up, see if your tolerance um, kind of does improve, like if you try like bigger and bigger doses. But yeah. In the same line, you talked about toxic thoughts. And this was interesting to me about a woman that had severe asthma combined with terrible hay fever. And she was mm -hmm. seeing, I, I believe, yeah. a psychologist or a psychotherapist. And why don't you tell the story of that, if you recall? Yeah, sure. So this was from the 19th century, and it is an incredible story. It's one of the first documented 
um, cases of the nocebo effect in the medical literature. Um, but yeah, she had this like terrible hay fever. So it's like even, you know, seeing if she saw flowers in the distance or like a, a, you know, a field in the distance coming into bloom, then she would just start, you know, sneezing kind of compulsively. Um, you know, she could barely breathe and those would be screaming like, you know, all, again, physical symptoms. Um, but her doctor, you know, without any of this new uh, psychological research on the expectation of it, he just guessed that maybe it was her mind that was creating those symptoms. So he found a super realistic glass model of a flower that looked almost, you know, identical to the real thing. So he invited her into her into his um, office and, you know, they sat chatting. She didn't have any symptoms on that day. Um, and then he just kind of casually took out this flower and showed it to her. And like immediately she started having all the symptoms of her hay fever, you know, her nose, her mouth were like really inflamed because of it. Um, and then, you know, he was like, well, actually, you know, <laughs> it's made of glass and she, you know, was able to check it. You know, she was convinced by that, um, you know, that he wasn't actually exposing her to flowers. And, you know, that I don't know whether that helped her symptoms that day, but he reported that a few weeks later, she came into his office and, like, took a big bunch of flowers and just, like, stuck her nose right in them and took a big, like, breath in and had no symptoms. So in that case, this kind of exposure therapy had actually cured her. And that's... They, that's just that's just the power of the mind, right? I mean, that's just that's just the games that your mind is playing. Is that right, David? Yeah, exactly. And you know, we don't know the origins of a lot of these nocebo. It's like it could have been that at one point in her life she had like a really, you know, serious allergic reaction. But then maybe later on her body, you know, wasn't going had kind of developed and wasn't going to respond in that way. But the expectation that she was going to become ill always made her ill. And then this just kind of proved to her that that wasn't the case and that actually it wasn't inevitable that she would have this suffering every summer for months on end. Mm. I want to close down by talking about the last chapter of your book. And it's something that you said you're very passionate about as well. And it's aging. And I'm in the, I'm in the field of aging in a sense with, with fitness and people trying to fight the, the good fight of aging. Talk to me about where does the expectation effect show up in aging? Well, I mean, first of all, like having the belief that you have some control over your aging is itself beneficial. So, you know, we know that the kind of genes that determine kind of how quickly someone ages, you know, they have a small effect on your trajectory, but it's not kind of um, all encompassing. So, you know, we do have, there's a lot that we can do with our lifestyles that will determine how fit we are as we get older. Um, but this research that I'm really fascinated by is was not just about whether we feel in control of our aging, it's actually just looking at whether you see aging as this kind of roughly, um, you know, like positive process where you get kind of, you know, you might suffer kind of um, some illnesses, but it's also time for growth and, you know, um, uh, you can recognize that actually for your mind, there are loads of benefits of getting older. So your decision-making kind of peaks in your 70s, your general knowledge improves at that time. Um, you know, your vocabulary is bigger at 70, so you're much better expressing yourself. So, you know, lots to look forward to. Um, and then, you know, you can build like more stable relationships and you can be more settled when you get older. Um, so there are people who kind of focus on those positive aspects. And then there are people who, you know, focus purely on the negative elements and the 
idea of decline and disability. So they just assume that things automatically get worse as they get older, that they're going to become more vulnerable, more lonely. They just don't see any benefits at all. And the research shows that actually those mindsets determine how quickly someone ages, um, which sounds incredible. Um, and, you know, the first study came out in 2002, 20 years ago, and it really did seem to kind of defy logic. It showed that the people with the positive views of ageing live for seven and a half years longer than people with the negative views of ageing. So a huge effect on longevity. Um, and I, I would have been sceptical if I'd read that, you know, 20 years ago, but actually the research since has just kind of shown, you know, in all kinds of ways, like how true this is. So, you know, it's been replicated with lots of different longitudinal studies. So tracking, you know, tens of thousands of people, the effect remains. And we see that um, uh, expectations of ageing not only influence, um, you know, longevity, but also risk of Alzheimer's, risk of cardiovascular disease, just risk of general ill health. Um, and then they've also looked at the mechanism. And again, it comes through the stress response. So essentially, if you see yourself as being kind of totally vulnerable as you get older, like all of the kind of daily challenges, you know, just something like going to, you know, mail a letter or going to be kind of, you know, going shopping is going to feel like a lot harder. So that is like a, a going to create a really negative view of the stresses you're facing because you just don't feel able to cope with them. It's going to lead to the unhealthy, like, you know, chronic peaks in cortisol that will last, you know, for months and years on end and it will only be increasing. That then increases inflammation within the body, which causes kind of wear and tear on our tissues. And we can even see the effects then down to the kind of... Um, workings within the cells. So as people get older, um, their kind of chromosomes have these kind of um, protective caps that tend to unravel as people get older. They're called uh, telomeres. And, you know, the older people get, the more they kind of wear down. But for the people with the, um, the positive views of ageing, that just happens less quickly than for those with the negative views of ageing. So biologically, you know, within their cells, they are like ageing at a different rate. And we also see that, you know, other markers are epigenetic markers within the cells, which genes are being expressed. You know, you see kind of broad patterns that tend to happen as people get older. But for the people with the positive views of ageing, um, they just go through that process more slowly. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I it's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually, because I just felt like this is something that we need to be talking about as a society. Um, there's just so much, like, ageism around us. Um, and it's, unlike other prejudices, I think it's still kind of socially acceptable. So you can give someone, you know, a card for their 60th or 70th birthday, and it can be, you know, taking the piss out of their, you know, what they've got to look forward to, you know, all of their kind of, forgetfulness and vulnerability and you know no one kind of blinks an eyelid over that um you know it can be taken in good humor but it's still reinforcing this idea that you're going to be more vulnerable when you get older like you're going to struggle it's going to be a bad process um you see it on tv you see it in adverts you know it's just everywhere and actually as the researchers themselves have said we're kind of you know these messages are actually killing people they're actually making people kind of have worse health and die earlier than they should be through this expectation of it. Wow. I just had a podcast with a guy named BJ Miller, who is in palliative care and he works very closely with people that are, you know, one week away from dying or on the road to death. And one of the sentences the, the most 
probably mind blowing sentences that we, he said in his in his time with me was that how you live is probably how you're going to die. So mm-hmm. if you live a very happy, positive life, you're probably going to leave this earth in that same way. But if you're dreading through life and you're you know complaining and doing all these things, that's probably how you're going to go out. And he watches people. He's been around a thousand deaths and he's seen mm-hmm. so many. And is that that one sentence has really stuck with me the last couple of weeks is how you live is probably how you're going to go. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that definitely fits with, you know, this research as well. It's like, you know, because actually what these researchers have shown, you know, we develop these ideas about aging really early on in our lives. So by the time, you know, someone's my age at like, you know, mid thirties, like those beliefs are already going to influence how you age. Um, it's never, you're never too young to start changing your beliefs about aging. Like I, at the moment, my kind of be thinking primarily about kind of other people around me and kind of expecting negative things of them. But at the same time, as we were saying earlier, like by thinking those things and by saying those things, I'm internalizing those thoughts. And then when I hit like, you know, 50 or 60 or 70, suddenly they're going to feel a lot more relevant to me. And then that's when this kind of um, overactive stress response is going to kick in, giving me chronic stress and leading to all of that bodily wear and tear that will ultimately lead me to age more quickly and die earlier than I should be. Right. It's interesting to me that some of these expectations are, uh, in other words, I like to almost visualize them as stories in your head. And David, I think some of these expectations or stories are very dug deep into your system. Like Mm. they're so deep within you that because, and it could be the way you were raised, what your parents said, just, you know, your society, some of these expectations are so within you. I got to imagine it's got to be difficult to unwind some of those. Where does somebody even, even start? And what are your thoughts on having expectations so deep in you that it's hard to even change your mind? No, I mean, it is often really difficult to change your mind. So I definitely wouldn't uh, kind of minimize that challenge that we all face. But, um, but you know, the, the research shows that like uh, you can take small steps and they add up over time. Um, and I do think the most important thing to do in like, all of these cases actually is to just kind of test yourself, like push yourself out of your comfort zone and do so with an open mind. So, you know, it might be, you know, in the gym, just doing a workout and just questioning that narrative that you've had and just see actually, you know, be quite analytical about it. Like, you know, what are you feeling? Is it really as catastrophic as you think it is? Or is it actually beneficial? Like can changing your mindset about those aches and pains actually make them more bearable or even more pleasant, more rewarding? Um, You know, same with like stress, you know, you don't have to think if you're like super nervous about doing public speaking, that you're going to be like incredibly charismatic straight away. But does just recognizing some of the benefits of the stress that you're experiencing, does that make it more pleasant? And does that actually help with your performance? And then, you know, over time, you're going to find that, um, that, you know, it becomes self-reinforcing. And that's definitely what I found in my own life is that you, you know, you see some benefits from what you're doing. Like you, you, you find some proof that you're kind of the negative narrative that you're telling yourself isn't true and you carry that to the next event and then the next event and it kind of builds up over time until you've told yourself a whole new story. And with ageing, I think that's absolutely what we have to do too. So, you know, when we hear these kind of um, uh, ageist remarks, you know, 
the first thing is to just be critical of them and just to kind of question like, is that fair? Is that true? Is that something that we should be assuming about ourselves and the people around us? Um, and then, you know, if you are of a certain age and, you know, you want to kind of question your, you know, whether you've had kind of these limits kind of imposed on you by others, you know, just try something that you wouldn't have tried before. Not questioning whether you're too old for it, but just doing it because you want to do it. And then, you know, looking at what you can achieve. And, and if that doesn't work, you know, look for something else and just kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone or simultaneously questioning the beliefs that have been holding you back. And together you're kind of building up this evidence base that helps you to rewrite your story. I have one more question that I've been thinking a lot about. I've been eager to hear your response. Do you think, David, it's better to have, in general, do you think it's better for people to have low expectations or high expectations? I think as I think about this more and I've been chewing on it for a while, a lot of my life, a lot of my perspective is I have really low expectations. And I have low expectations for people around me because then I don't get let down. Right. If, mm-hmm. I, if I have low expectations of my boss, then then I know he's not going to let me down, and so on and so forth. And whereas at high expectations, if you live your life having high expectations of things around you, people around you, circumstances around you, I think you're more at risk for being let down more. Uh, I'm not sure. I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Is it better to live with low expectations or high expectations? Hmm. I, I think like my philosophy is um, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. So. Well, absolutely. I think we should be really, you know, conscious of like um, the challenges that we might face and our potential for failure or, you know, the potential for others to disappoint us. So, you know, we don't want to go around the world with this kind of blind optimism. Um, But at the same time, I think we have to open our minds to the possibility that things won't be as bad as we fear. And also to, you know, equally kind of prepare ourselves for the the possibility of being pleasantly surprised. Um, Just kind of accepting that life is full of ambiguities and uncertainties. Um, And it's not pleasant to be in an uncertain situation, but actually it can often be better than you think it's going to be. And just kind of allowing for yourself to sit with that ambiguity, I think, is is the way I approach life. Mm, Very cool. So somebody that just got done listening to this and they're really excited, they want to put the expectation effect into their life. I like to give my listeners something that they can do at the end of every episode. Are there one, two or three things that the listener can do to help to play the expectation effect into their lives? Uh, Yeah, totally. So like I said, you know, question your assumptions, you know, kind of try to look kind of objectively at the facts um, and then, you know, kind of go from there, kind of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. But if you're struggling to do that, if you feel yourself kind of overwhelmed by kind of negativity, there are some steps you can take to make that easier. Um, so the first is to have a growth mindset. And that is just to recognize that, you know, any kind of personal improvement often comes kind of through in- incremental improvements rather than um, kind of huge leaps. So just kind of recognizing that fact and recognizing the brain's plasticity, the brain's capacity to change over time that can be really helpful um, the second is to practice a something called self distancing which is a psychological technique that just helps you to kind of break the negative rumination you might be experiencing and, and essentially that is just imagining that you're um, advising a friend who's facing the same situation that you are so it's just kind of taking taking the situation and putting it you know, at this point where you feel less kind of invested in it. And what you'll find is that you're often 
you know, a bit more objective with your friend than you would be yourself. So, you know, if your friend is struggling to kind of increase their fitness, I hope you'd be unlikely to say, you know, well, it's because you're a failure, you'll never get fit and you might as well give up. Like you're more likely to kind of tell yourself the things that are going to help you to develop the positive expectation of it. You know, you're more likely to say to them that actually this is going to take work, but, you know, you might be operating under these false assumptions, you know, all of those things. Um, and, you know, the same with ageing, I think. Like um, if you were talking to someone who was elderly, I hope you'd be unlikely to say, like, I'll just give up because, you know, you've, you've passed your soul by day. I think you'd be kinder to them than you might be to yourself. Um, and then the, the third point is uh, to practice self-compassion. And that's really important. So there's a danger when writing any kind of book aimed at self-improvement that it kind of puts people under this pressure to feel responsibility for all of their failures as if it was like, um, you know, anything that went wrong was absolutely 100% their fault. Um, that kind of self-criticism actually is itself, you know, really negative and actually prevents people from kind of building positive habits in the future. Um, so just being kind to yourself, just recognising that, you know, you don't have to succeed at every single thing you're trying to do, but just, again, focusing on kind of the trajectory, taking the long view and being kind to yourself at those kind of dips, you know, all those setbacks and just accepting that these things happen, but you can kind of regroup, um, you can learn from the mistake and then grow from that um, rather than just beating yourself up and blaming yourself. Um, I think that's really powerful for but just developing a, a more positive view of life in general, but specifically for then applying these expectation effects. Yeah, those are profound. So growth mindset, knowing the brain can change, practice self-distancing. How would you advise a friend? And then practicing self-compassion. Those are powerful. Those are awesome. Those are, that's a great way to end. David, thanks for taking the time to do this. So the book, The Expectation Effect, uh, anything else that you want to send my listeners to if they want to support you more? Yeah, sure. I mean, they can follow me on Instagram, uh, David A. Robson, or Twitter, where I'm more active, D underscore A underscore Robson. They can visit my website and leave comments there at davidrobson.me. Um, yeah, you know, I love hearing from people. Awesome. Cool. David, thanks for taking the time. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much.